0: Let us now open God's Holy Word together, and for our Scripture reading, first of all, we'll turn to the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, the verses 1 through 21, and after that we'll turn to Galatians, chapter 5, the verses 16 to the end of the chapter for our text. So, our reading, first of all, from Ephesians, chapter 5, and there we read, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting." but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with these empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret." But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine. "...in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God." So far our reading in Ephesians, we turn now to Galatians chapter 5, and we start at verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christs have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another." After the sermon, let us sing together Hymn 50, all four stanzas. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace has repeatedly met with the criticism that it promotes careless and wicked living. In a way, you can see that, like you say, in the whole struggle in the early New Testament church where you had what we call the Judaizers, They became Christians, but they really seemed to stress that you had to keep on obeying the laws of Moses. You could say that was just a matter of traditionalism, but also at work there is the whole idea that indeed we have to do something, we have to compel people to do something if they're going to live holy lives. If it is all a matter of grace, it's only going to promote godlessness because your works don't seem to matter anymore. Now we know that this kind of thinking also was very prominent in the time leading up to the Reformation because over the centuries the church had begun to stress all the things that we must do to be saved besides the kind of good works, also all kinds of works of charity, but also the whole idea of prayer to saints, buying indulgences, all kinds of things that we had to do, you could say man had to do to be saved. Now, Ben... Luther and also the other reformers then stressed, no, we are justified by faith alone. You know, it's also reflected, for example, in Lord's Day 24, Rome responded by saying, that's going to make people careless and wicked. You need to have something to threaten them, otherwise they will not obey. Same kind of accusation also popped up when the discussion shifted to the whole doctrine of election, which really is integrally tied with justification by faith alone. But also there, if you read through the canons of Dort, in particular also if you look at the conclusions, conclusion four mentions the idea that if you stress we are elected unto salvation, it is all out of grace through faith, it's going to make people careless, and they will commit the most atrocious crimes. Now, it's important, therefore, to know how to answer the accusation of God's grace leading to careless and wicked living. We have to answer that, be able to answer that with respect to those who challenge us on that point. But we need to know it especially with respect to ourselves. Because a proper understanding is essential for Christian living. And the answer really lies in the gift of the Spirit, who is part and parcel of the gift of salvation. It's interesting when Paul in the letter to the Galatians, where he has to defend the gospel of being justified by faith alone, then when he comes to chapter 3, verse 2, for example, he stressed how the Galatians had received the Spirit by hearing with faith. It's interesting. He doesn't even, first of all, put it in terms of being justified by faith, but about receiving the Spirit. Verse 14 of the same chapter, he mentions that the Spirit was part of the blessing of Abraham received through faith. And then, again, chapter 4, verse 6, he mentions how God had sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Then, with that Spirit, we are able to confess God as Abba, Father. Not long ago, you would have also had a sermon on Lord's Day 20 about the Holy Spirit. And also in Lord's Day 20, it is confessed that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. It's not a wish, something for the future. No, a part of being a Christian is that you have received the Holy Spirit. Now, the presence of the Spirit in our lives is really the key to Christian living. If we see that, there is no need for legalism with its demands and its threats. We will also stay clear of the other extreme of what they call libertinism, where people think, I can do whatever I want. I can live a loose and immoral life. It doesn't really matter. No. No. The Apostle Paul points us to the way of the Spirit also in our text for this morning when he states that if we walk by the Spirit then we will not gratify the desires or as the New King James uses the word the lusts of the flesh. That we may see this clearly and grow in our Christian walk I therefore proclaim to you walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Because first of all the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and secondly, you have crucified the flesh. So walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, as we begin to work out the first point, I draw your attention to the way that Paul is not giving two commands in the sense of walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires or the lusts of the flesh. No, rather he's saying that if we do the one, that is, if we walk by the Spirit, we automatically will not do the other. Gratify the desires of the flesh. So, therefore, we should focus on what we should do, not so much on what we should not do. Focus on the positive, and the negative will take care of itself itself. It's not going to work the other way around. If we would focus on the negative, trying to avoid the ways of the flesh and the desires of the flesh, that doesn't mean we automatically will fill it with the way of the spirit. No, there could be a vacuum. So we have to focus on the positive, focus on the spirit. Now the reason the focus on the spirit will keep us from gratifying the desires of the flesh is because we're talking here about two opposite walks of life. And they simply cannot coexist. And Paul is emphatic about this as he mentions it three times: that the desires, the lusts of the flesh, they are against the spirit, and the desires of the flesh are against the of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other. When he writes that they keep you from doing the things that you want to do. He he brings out that if you try to do both in your life, your effort to do one will always be undermined by the other. So, if you try to follow the desires of the flesh, but also you want to have the Spirit in your life, well, then the Spirit will work on your conscience. So, So, that if you do follow the desires of the flesh, you're going to have a guilty conscience. It will not actually bring the pleasure that you thought it would. And then if you want to follow the ways of the flesh, of the spirit, but you have not made a real effort to stop doing the ways of the flesh, then then the ways of the flesh, they will hinder you because they're going to tug at you and at the most you will walk in the way of the spirit reluctantly. So where the two try to co-inhabit, neither can function and the result will be a sense of misery. Now Paul then brings out how the way of the Spirit and the way of the flesh are opposed to each other. And he does that by giving a list of works of the flesh and a list of the fruit of the Spirit. He mentions, it's interesting depending on what translation you use, because of course they, they work with different textual traditions, but... The ESV tradition uses about 15 works of the flesh. I think the New King James has about 17 of them, but they're all related to each other, not too big a deal there. At the same time, even to realize also that the list is not exhaustive, because in verse 21, Paul also mentions and things like these. But we should notice that as he mentions these works of the flesh and then also the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit... They, they kind of stand in contrast to each other. Not that one lines up exactly against the other one, but the categories of sins, they kind of line up over against each other. And for that reason, it is helpful to work through them kind of side by side. And this will bring out the contrast impressing on us that as you work, you say, cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, there will be no room for the desires of the flesh, and really vice versa. And now is the Apostle Paul, in the way he writes here, first of all, mentions the works of the flesh. We will follow through this list and then kind of point out how the fruit of the Spirit, different aspects of that fruit, stand in contrast. Now, as for the works of the flesh... I'd better read the actual text here because when I made this sermon, of course, I used the ESV, so the words are slightly different. But if you look at the works of the flesh, it starts in verse 19. It says there, they are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Now, common denominator is that these are all sexually related sin. Adultery, of course, is the most blatant, also as expressed in the Seventh Commandment, where a man goes and sleeps in a sexual relations with another man's wife or the other way around. Fornication is a, is a broader term which really refers to all kind of sexual relations outside the marriage relationship. We would exclude, for example, premarital sexual relationship, uncleanness can even go broader yet. It could refer to any kind of sexual relation as also Paul, for example, writes about it in Romans chapter 1. We think of all the things he mentions there in terms of homosexual relationships, other perversions mentioned also in Scripture, the Old Testament. And then we think of, of lewdness. Well, that covers anything else, you can almost say. So, of course, in the end, sexual immorality is not only involved in direct sexual acts, but even Anything that perverts the beautiful gift of sex as the Lord has given it to us. In our day and age, we can think of, of pornography, where really the women's bodies are displayed to satisfy the lustful leering of men. We think of the way it is promoted nowadays and the fashion styles, which you sometimes say, well, that really crosses the, the bounds of decency. Because they they show way more. That really is appropriate and that can be true both for women and for men. Even though we might think it is more the case for for women, but even in the way that fashions go, there always can be a sense of, of lewdness about the way that people dress themselves. Now, notice these words. We just touched on a few different things, but they cover the whole range of sexual perversion, sexual impropriety. They are all ways of works of the flesh. And it's interesting, you know, that at times we think, oh, our age. Our age, it's it's never been so bad as it is today. Because sometimes we think back, maybe the older generation, 40, 50 years ago, we think it was better then. Well, we should not kid ourselves in this respect, because the way that Paul writes about these things, you know, there he wrote to the Galatians, and he wrote about similar things to the Ephesians, as we could notice. He wrote about it to the Corinthians. Really, we are dealing here with a universal human problem because sexual perversion, sexual sin has always been a powerful draw on God's people. For that reason, he had to also admonish his readers. It's interesting also in that respect when the Apostles met with the elders of the church in Jerusalem, and they said, okay, we cannot expect the Gentile Christians to keep all the laws as given through Moses, but we should impress upon them that they should not involve themselves in idolatry, worshiping false gods, and also sexual immorality, because often false religion went together with sexual perversions. Those things were specifically spelled out But the point that comes out here is that we're dealing here with a general human problem, not unique to our age, and our age, as bad as it may be, is not necessarily worse than any other time in history. Now, we see then the works of the flesh. When we look at the fruit of the Spirit, then, as we said, we can't line up, make exact two columns and line up the first over against the first, first work of the flesh and the first fruit of the Spirit. But if you go to the last fruit of the Spirit, self-control, that really touches this whole category of sexual sins. Because that term self-control is used in many other passages as well, although not exclusively, but, but generally to refer to sexual conduct. For one who has the Spirit, does not live in wild pursuit of whatever satisfies sexual urges. To think of Paul again, as he writes about this in 1 Corinthians 6, where he was addressing the fact that that the Corinthians, they were Christians, but they were still visiting temple prostitutes. He says, how can you do that? How can you do that? You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body has been bought with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so so Paul stresses also throughout Scripture that that throughout his writings that the proper home for sexual relations is within the bond of marriage between a husband and wife. And this requires self control, self control to, to keep that for the proper relationship. And this has to be underlined in an age where there is so much pressure to accept the works of the flesh into the temple of the Holy Spirit, whether that be individually into our life, all kind of sexual perversions are also into the life of the church, which is then supposed to accept that. An honest reading of Scripture makes it clear that these stand opposed to each other. The ways of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, and the way of the Spirit, which focuses on sexual purity within the marriage relationship, summed up in that word, self-control. Now, having said that, this is not to deny or minimize that there may be turmoil in someone's heart, someone who loves the Lord, but there are that that urgings in the flesh, there are the works of the flesh that are trying to push their way forward. And you know, in that respect, it may not even be possible to stop, let's say, even same-sex thoughts popping into one's mind, into one's heart. That does not mean one has to give in to it. No, because there's a recognition. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. In the same way, you know, a single person who will have impure sexual thoughts coming into one's heart. They don't respond to that, by saying, well, then I better do what I feel like doing. No, self-control. You say the fruit of the Spirit is not to do that. The fruit of the Spirit is to to fight the ways of the flesh and to remain pure. So even though the reality is there, that the works of the flesh, the ways of the flesh, they push themselves forward, but then we say, no, I want to walk in the way of the Spirit. You don't give in to them, but you pray to the Spirit for the fruit of self-control. Now, next in that list that Paul gives there, he mentions idolatry and sorcery. Again, he put these together because it refers to the worship of of false gods, also sorcery, trying to get into touch with the spirit world for whatever reason. Again, we think of the decision that we mentioned earlier that was made in Jerusalem that the Gentile Christians, they should abstain from the worship of idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, all the kind of things that were, were associated with pagan worship. For in that respect, the Christians should not involved themselves in practices that associated them with pagan religions. Now, as was evident in also the letter to the Corinthians, this this called for quite some care and discernment. Because for the Christians in Corinth, for example, if they wanted to buy meat, they had to deal with the reality that all meat was basically slaughtered in a religious setting. They didn't all use it in the temple, but the rest might wake it down to the marketplace. But it had been slaughtered in a religious setting. Now, in that respect, they had to be careful. Paul says, you can buy it, don't ask any questions. But if someone makes a point about it, saying, well, now you're buying this meat that was slaughtered in such a way that it honored Zeus or whoever, then you would say, okay, I don't want to be associated with false religion, therefore I won't take it. Not because I don't understand, but because that person might not understand. At respect, in our day and age, you know, we can think for a comparison. Nowadays, they sometimes make a big deal about meat having to be slaughtered in, in a kosher way. That's for the Jews, or in halal, that is for the Muslims. Now, even if you see that on the package, you don't make too big a deal about that. But if someone says, oh, when you buy that particular product, when it is halal, that means you worship our God, then you say, well, now I'll leave it on the shelf. Because lest you think that I worship your God, I don't. But as we said, in general, we have to to show some discernment, but we don't want to in any way be associated with false gods. Now, over against this, we can place then also that first triad of the Spirit, namely love, joy, peace. Why can we put that over against idolatry? Well, because love for the Lord is always to be first. We think of how the Lord Jesus Christ summed up the Ten Commandments. The first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And also when it comes to joy, what is our joy as Christians? Well, it is that we are God's children, that we have this blessed relationship with Him. It's often a theme of the Psalms, the joy love for the Lord. And and just you want to sing about that. Psalms express that joy of being children of the Lord. And as for peace, well, we think of, of the peace we have with God in Jesus Christ. So we rejoice in knowing that there is no condemnation with God, but we are at peace with God. So when you focus on the Lord, when you love Him, when you rejoice in that relationship, when you think of, of the peace we have with God in Jesus Christ, then actually there is no room for idols in your heart anymore. You're just too busy focusing on the Lord your God. You see, if there's the one, you focus on the one, then the other, no room for it anymore. Well, next Paul, next Paul lists another whole list of things. He mentions hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders. Again, as we, we look at that list, you know, there, there we see a total self-centeredness, where the only concern is your own well-being, and if you have to be a bully to go through life, who cares? It's one of those things, me first. That's always comes to the fore in all these kind of activities. Now where these are present, where these kind of attitudes are present, these works of the flesh, you think, for example, in, in marriage or family life. Well, that makes it a very unhappy, very dangerous place. Just think that, that if someone is, has a short fuse, blows off the handle just like that, then then the wife might not dare to say anything to her husband because she doesn't know how he's going to react. Maybe he even lashes out in his anger, not even towards her, but towards the children. that happens, children also are going to dread going home if they're going to face abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse. Hostility is there, even in the workplace. If you work with people, who you know you have to kind of walk on eggshells around them, if you have a boss like that, oh, that's a terrible environment, that's a toxic environment, and you dread going to work, and you go to work because you have to pay the bills, but it's a dangerous place, because people live in fear of each other, and people begin to manipulate the whole situation so they can survive. Now we see the contrast in the next triad of the Spirit, which mentions long-suffering or patience, kindness and goodness Be now thinking of the home situation again what a blessing it is when when a husband and wife and parents show that patience that long suffering in the way that they deal with one another with their children when there is kindness in the home and and the spouse they, they, the spouses they know that about each other that kindness and also the children they know mom and dad are so patient they're so kind and also that goodness, always seeking to do good, speaking good words, encouraging words. Really, that, that is a, a wholesome environment, whether it is in the home, whether it is in the life of the congregation. You know, you can even think it through there. What Can you imagine if you go to a congregational meeting and you're always kind of afraid that brother so-and-so is going to stand up and give it to the minister or give it to the, whoever leads the meeting? kind of afraid, they that going to happen? But if you all know, you come together and you know that there is this, this kindness, this, this patience and this goodness, then you look forward to those meetings because you know you will be edified by it and you, you speak about things together. Workplace is the same way. All these things, when you are busy with the fruit of the Spirit, that brings a, a healthy, a wholesome environment. Then finally, Paul mentions drunkenness and revelries. That revelries, that refers to, to excessive feasting. You might even say wild partying. You know, sometimes we, we speak about people who are kind of like party animals, and they think that, that a, a weekend is for getting drunk to the point that actually you, you vomit and that time to get stoned out of your mind as high as you possibly can. But over against this, we think of the last triad, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Notice we use self-control already with respect to sexual immorality, but we said the categories they are addressed in one way or the other. But, but all these things, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, they bring out reliability in a person, humility, self-mastery, and dealing with, with all those kind of threats to, to remaining self conscious and, and fully in control of your life. But as we said, that self-control was important with respect to sexual sins. It's also fitting with respect to alcohol, really by extension to any substance abuse. Think of what we also read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, when, when Paul contrasts the way of the Spirit with getting drunk, because he said, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So don't be intoxicated with the alcoholic spirits. That's the way of the world. That's the way of the flesh. But be filled with the Spirit who lives in us, who has been given to us. And so as we have walked through these two lists, it should be obvious that the works of the flesh and the desires of the flesh do not fit with the fruit of the Spirit. They truly do stand opposed to each other. And further, as we reflect on the fruit of the Spirit, we can understand why Paul can write in verse 18 that if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. There's no need for law. There's no need to compel, no need to threaten. Because you could say that with the Holy Spirit who's given to us, He has been given. That's not a, an if, it, He has been given. You could say that with the Spirit in us, Paul says that, says it elsewhere too, Actually, the law is now written on the tablets of our hearts. And so that means that there is fresh, holy air in our lives that will recognize that the unholy and profane desires of the flesh do not belong anymore. That stinks. That's the ways of the old, rotten nature that does not belong where that refreshing wind of the Spirit comes into our lives. Now, all this is underlined by what he writes in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's our second point. Now, we should note that Paul writes about having crucified. He puts it in the past tense. So, it's interesting here also in the way that he puts it in the active tense. It's different from, for example, what he writes in Romans chapter 6 where we read that the old self was crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ when he died. You see the difference between passive, it was done, it happened, and the active. Now, in Romans 6, Paul, of course, does work it through when he points out what has happened, and then he shows also the consequences, how the Romans should be working with that. Now again, also in the flow of Galatians, you could say, Paul has shown you have died with Christ, but now also, he says now, but now you also have to look at what you are doing, what you have done. It's not a contradiction. It's just showing the two sides of the same coin. Because also when it comes to Christians having crucified the desires of the flesh, you could say that is the fruit of the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. For those who confess Christ, Crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. We're not just passive, we're also active. And you know, actually, we we confess that. Every member who has made profession of faith has had to answer that question in the form of profession of faith, where it says, do you declare that you love the Lord God and that it is your heartfelt desire to serve Him according to His word, to forsake the world and to crucify your old nature? You see, it's your desire to do that. Because we have been crucified with Christ, we also now say, I want to crucify, and I have crucified it in principle. Because crucifying the old nature is part and parcel of repentance. And brothers and sisters, do you see what this means? As a believer, we do not only look to the crucified Lord for our salvation, Not only do we say, I share in that crucifixion, but we also say, I will now undertake a crucifixion. I am taking my old nature, and I have taken that old nature in principle, and I have nailed it to the cross with all its desires, all its evil works. It's very vivid imagery, this whole idea of crucifixion. It's Even good to keep in mind, you know, crucifixion in in the Roman Empire was reserved, and even in the Old Testament, it was for someone who was cursed. Well, our sinful flesh, our old nature is cursed. And we know from crucifixion that it was a very painful way to die. It's often said to be one of the most cruel ways to put someone to death. It was also a slow way to die. Sometimes criminals would would hang on the cross for days when finally their last breath would leave their their lungs. But the same is true for the works of the flesh. They die slowly, even though we say, yes, I have crucified them. And then just when we think, that we struggle with a particular sin, that we think, "I, I, I got it, I got it. I think I've been allowed to get past this particular sin to move on. It almost seems that when we think that, they catch a second wind, and we think it was dead, or it should be dying, because we crucified it. You know, and the worst thing we can do then, when that happens, when all of a sudden that old, that old habit, for example, wants to resurface, an old practice, then, then we shouldn't affirm it. We shouldn't let it have, find room in our lives. No. Nope crucifixion we think of it you drove the nail in firmly and quickly and so it should be with the works of the flesh and when also then it comes to to turning around you know when it comes to also the ways of repentance then we should not make a wide u-turn thinking okay well I know I have this problem this way of the flesh and I kind of have to ease myself out of it no repentance is not taking the widest U-turn you can, but that it is actually turning around on the spot, right then and there. Because you don't ease yourself out of sin. Just imagine a person who was struggling with the sin of pornography. It says, okay, you know, it's not right. I know that. But I'm going to do this. I'm spending three hours a day on it now. But I'm going to bring it down to two and a half hours this week, and then slowly but surely I'll wean myself off it. No you stop. Repentance means you turn around because you say, I've nailed this to the cross. It doesn't belong in my life. It doesn't fit with the Holy Spirit. You know, the same way if someone is abusive towards his wife, he doesn't say, well, I'll only beat her three times a week, and then I'll ease myself after that. I'll only be rude to her twice a week. No, you repent. You turn around. You stop because it does not belong in your life. You have crucified the old ways. Now we know that sin has a powerful pull on us even as we confess Christ and have crucified the flesh. should never underestimate this pull. We do so at our own peril. But do remember, you have crucified the flesh. And the way to move forward then is to say, I have received the Holy Spirit. You know, and Paul comes back to that in verse 25, when, when we read also there that he says, well, let us walk, in the Spirit. Other way of translating that, the ESV does that too, it says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If we truly understand the gift of the Spirit, if we truly believe that we have received the Spirit, we just confessed that a few weeks ago, Lord's Day 20, then the way forward is to follow the Spirit. After all, he, he is in us. You know, time and again when Paul makes appeals to his readers to change their lives, he always appeals to the fact you have received the Spirit. He doesn't say, dig into your own heart and figure it out. He says, no, look to the Spirit. Look to the God who dwells in you, who is working in you. So he's urging us on. And because the Spirit is in us, it is our calling to keep in step with the Spirit. You want to understand what keeping a step with the Spirit is. You know, you can imagine how, how soldiers, for example, are taught to march. And then they have to all walk, and they have to go right foot, left foot, and they have to be synchronized. Well, in this way, it's not some corporal or whatever master they call them calling the shots, but it's the Spirit. And the Spirit says right foot, left foot, and so we follow. The Spirit says the way of holiness, we follow, not the ways of the flesh. He sets the pace. And so, brothers and sisters, here is the guiding principle when the finger is about to click on the mouse to go to, you mentioned it earlier, pornographic site, for example, when, when unholy sexual urges are present, when we are about to react, react in anger to our spouse or our children, or maybe at school when we're about to bully a fellow student, when we are thinking about going to a party where we know that drunkenness and getting high and all kinds of other improper things probably will take place, then we have to tell ourselves, did I not receive the Holy Spirit? Did I not crucify the desires of the flesh? Is this keeping in step with the Spirit? Is this building up life, the life that Christ has obtained for me? Or is it still walking in the old ways, which is destroying life? And so indeed, think about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Think about the contrast of of the Spirit and the flesh. And know that if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, because there will be no room for the desires of the flesh. And let us therefore make it our aim to keep in step with the Spirit. Amen.